Welcome to IEP Radio, a show dedicated to the education of all things indoor environmental quality related. And now here's your host, Michael Schrantz. Hello, everybody, and welcome to IEP Radio. This is episode 10. Today, we will be speaking with uh, Dr. Alice Dahlia, uh, Laboratory Director, and also Sarah McIntoe, Business Development Director with Prism Analytical Technologies. Fantastic company, fantastic group of individuals there that offer really kind of like a I don't want to call it a one-stop shop, but a really good package as it relates to the equipment, the media, and the ability to analyze chemical samples, which is a great tool for us IEPs in the field. And even, which you'll find that we'll talk about in a little bit, uh, the ability for certain homeowners or those who are on limited budgets to have the option to rent the equipment and do that sort of thing. PRISM uh, it focuses on uh, chemical samples when we're talking about things like total volatile organic compounds, microbial volatile organic compounds, we have a mouthful, or even things like separating out formaldehyde or even semi-volatile organic compounds, things like things like from fire retardant or, or whatnot, and really helped fill a niche in my assessment abilities to test in a pragmatic way uh, that may be code for not breaking the bank uh, and not bringing gear that's too cumbersome into the home. Uh, some of the other gear that we used to have, I mean, was quite large and heavy and just not practical for a mobile operation to assess exposure in a home for those who are worried about chemicals uh, and, and trying to identify sources. And that's why, uh, Today, we're going to, again, be speaking with PRISM because they really offer a package, including everything into the report that they provide. And they have different levels they offer, uh, most of which provide guidance to even narrow down possible sources where any sort of chemical may be coming from, say, should you detect it in a sample. So um, very happy to be able to speak with them today. Welcome to the show, Alice and Sarah. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. It's great to be here. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you both making the time. Um, so yeah, give us a quick overview about what Prism Analytical Technologies is and how it can be a good tool in the IEP's uh, tool bucket. Sure. Um, so we're, we're pretty focused on volatile organic compounds, um, VOCs. That's kind of our niche. Um, and they can be one of the more challenging things to deal with, um, primarily because you can't really detect them. You can't see them. Sometimes you might smell them. Sometimes you might not feel well or something, but you don't necessarily know what might be causing those kinds of things. So it's really tough because you've got no way of, of, of figuring out what, what's going on with them. So you need some kind of a tool. So um, there are some handheld devices that you can use uh, on site, um, but they're not specific in terms of what kinds of chemicals you might be dealing with. So you really are kind of stuck with moving back to a laboratory. Uh, yeah, we run of. into that issue. It seems like it's a general screen, uh, mm -hmm. you know, a PBB ray or something, for example, mm -hmm. that helps us screen quickly. But when the mat when the chemical compounds matter, especially if you can flush out a source, uh, becomes mm -hmm. more important. What about, uh, you know, it's actually, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, I was going to bring this up later, but, uh, you know, we know there's different ways of collecting chemicals beyond a handheld meter that's more quantitative in nature, not really qualitative. Um, we also have things like other methods. I mean, you mm -hmm. primarily employ, correct me if I'm wrong, sorbent tubes, but they have things like Suma canisters uh, yep. or, or Tedlar bags. Why would somebody go to that uh, method of collection, if any, why would they prefer it over a sorbent tube? Um, 
the the primary reason you would use a, a suma canister or a bag, which are basically kind of the same. So um, they're, they both are gonna collect a whole air sample. Um, the suma canister is a little bit more durable. Um, you can get some diffusion of, uh, through, the, uh, through the bag material. So sometimes it's, it's a little bit tricky there. Right. Um, but yeah, the canisters uh, is uh, more, definitely more sturdy and more inert. So it's, it's also better that way. But cumbersome. Uh, I mean, like no, no, people aren't gonna bring 10 of these in their back pocket. Yeah, that that is kind of the one of the biggest uh, uh, reasons to not use a canister. But um, and they've they've been making them increasingly smaller, so it's it's gotten better. But right. but really, you're looking at in those situations um, the really really light gases. So if you want to do methane, natural gas, or um, uh, I'm trying to think of some other good examples. Um, well, that you're on the spot, you can't think of any. That's exactly, how it is, right? exactly. Off so screen, you got it. But yeah, yeah. So the yeah, the absorbent tubes. Um, since you're passing air through them, uh, and basically you're stripping the the chemicals out of the air at that point, uh, you don't actually want to collect air. So you don't want to collect anything that's also of a similar size as, as air would be, like for example, mm -hmm. methane. Interesting. So that's one of the reasons you can't really collect. With absorbent tube, um, like really light stuff. So, so typically, if people are asking, well, why should I use one or the other? I, I'm, I'm pointing out which which end of the of the kind of the volatility spectrum that they're looking for. So, if you're looking for the light stuff, the canister is a way to go. If you're looking for the really heavy stuff, um, absorbent tube is is much more reliable. And if you're kind of in the middle, then you can use either one. And, and so that actually begs a good question. This is wonderful. Um, how, do, how does one even know to ask, I want the lighter weight VOCs? Because, I mean, it wasn't too many years ago that when someone said TVOC, I, I thought they were talking about an electronic device um, mm -hmm. and not knowing. And to me, it's all the same thing. It's just one big TVOC. And you're like, no, 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 no. There's thousands, arguably. Yeah. Um, does a person have any guidance to help them tell you they want to look for lighter weight versus heavier weight? Um, not Really, that's going to be a situation-dependent uh, kind of question. Um, right. So if you think you have, you know, something lighter, I mean, that's that's kind of where you're you're looking at it. Um, okay, I mean, well, then what get, about you a can get things mode. like carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide with a canister as well? You need a little bit of a different um, analysis process, I think, for that. But. All right. Well, then let me switch the question. You've been using the term. This is great. Lighter and heavier. How, mm -hmm. Are we talking specific gravity? I mean, what are we talking about to measure that density? So, I mean, because they could go online and say, well, I heard this thing, because, you know, everyone's a Google expert, uh, right. about benzene. But yeah. I don't know if it's lightweight or it's heavier weight. You may, but they don't. Is there a resource they can go to or any, any general guidance for them? Um, there, there are some definitions um, that you can use that can be helpful. Um, okay. I was trying to get this to work a little bit better. I would, I would argue a failsafe is have them call you guys up if I don't know if you <laughs> offer that, but it, it could be because I'm, I'm, I'm putting them on the spot, which is not fair, um, but not for any cruel reason. It's just, you know, that's a, that's a fair question to ask. Uh, I know the value of doing like a broad spectrum TVOC analysis. I've already learned that perhaps with, for the very, very lighter weight gases that maybe the sorbent tube is not the best medium to collect that sample that perhaps a sorbent to um, suma canister is a better application in, in that environment. But we need guidelines uh, mm -hmm. as professionals and laymen to help you make reasonable decisions. So maybe I don't know if you can even say 
if you're worried about household chemicals, that mm -hmm. it, if that range is, is fair to say it's narrow in a band of heavier contaminants or if it's too broad, because again, it depends on the chemical, but have some, some guidance. And if beyond what Alice may be getting ready to share with us, you may need to actually call them up. And is that something you offer? Can people call you up and ask you about this? Yeah, sure. Definitely. Okay. We get lots okay. of questions about well, what is this or what should I do about that? And um, so it's, yeah, it's a, it's a very common kind of question. I, I do have something if I could share it. Yeah, try to grab help. the screen if you can. And... All right. So can you, hopefully you can see this. Um, I can. Uh, so this is, um, and I tried to do this kind of in the, in the proper um, uh, presentation mode, but it kind of messed things up. So I just I took it off. Right. But so there's uh, essentially some definitions um, that, that are typically used uh, to describe, you know, the heavy and the light stuff. And it basically has to do with how, at what point, what boiling point basically do you go from um, a liquid into a gas state? Uh -huh. So, and it's not an exact kind of thing. So, um, so you'll see, you know, here are the, the what they're called permanent gases. So I mentioned like methane and ethane and some carbon monoxide and those kinds of things. So those are considered permanent gases because they're always in a gaseous state. Only under extreme conditions would they be in any kind of a liquid um, uh, form. Um, and and so they're boiling in this in this kind of 50 to 100 Celsius. So um, 100 Celsius is, or 50 Celsius, excuse me, is about 120 Fahrenheit, just to kind of give you a reference a, point. A reference point. Yeah, I, I have one of these. I had both of these, uh, 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 both from all the high, or Fahrenheit and, and Celsius on it, but of course I couldn't find that one. That's okay. We don't want to make this uh, too easy for the people watching. I mean, exactly. information, so... Exactly. So, and then the volatile organic compounds um, would be basically from the point where the very volatiles kind of kind of end up to this higher 240, 250 Celsius, which I think is something like 600 Fahrenheit. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and then uh, the semi-volatile uh, would be again above that. Um, and those are things that are going to be more likely to be in a in a, a solid or a semi kind of, or more of a proportion of them is going to be in a solid state. Okay. You mentioned something about dust earlier. That's one of the reasons sometimes people will collect dust because the, um, the semi-volatiles will essentially condense onto whatever's there. And dust is an easy thing to pick up and- And fall, and fall out of the, the air if it's in a sedentary environment? Yeah. Yeah. So it'll, okay. you'll yeah. see it on surfaces. You know, some people will use wipes as well for those kinds of things. Right. Um, so it's kind of a partitioning of how much is in the gas phase and how much is in some other phase. That's essentially yeah. what it what it kind of comes down to. So, um, that's the basic criteria. It's so it's temperature boiling paint is what really defines that very light VOC versus your 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 standard panel, which we'll get more into in a second. I have yeah. one of your reports um, queued up. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, and it's um, it, we use we use temperature to kind of describe it, but essentially it's also size. So. Um, the molecule, which is a bunch of atoms stuck together. Um, so the molecule, the smaller mo this molecule is, the lighter it is the, in terms of the, you know, the boiling point and, and also it's what's called the molecular weight. Um, so as you add more of those atoms on there, you increase the molecular weight, which increases that boiling point, which basically makes it less volatile. Right. Um, so that's, that's kind of the background behind it. But temperature really is, is 
kind of the way it's defined in terms of and it's also it's also relative because i'm sure at that at that atom level you know the the molecular weight is could be orders of magnitude higher than a simpler um compound or what but mm -hmm. it's still relatively speaking lightweight it's not like it falls out of the air like a brick Right. So in, in simple language for those who need it, and that would primarily be me of us three, um, if it's not like if you're looking for semi-volatile organic compounds that you're picking up just dust because you think there's no way there's an airborne exposure. It's just, it's all about statistics and it's all about, you know, um, orders of magnitude. Where are we going to get the most appreciation for possible exposure to these things? And so mm -hmm. uh, question, uh, in the case of semi-volatile organic compounds, what is it that you're recommending people do i mean is there a dust option is there a sorbent tube option and, and wh why would one do one or the other um there yeah there are all those options um and the semi-volatiles are in the air there's just again a, a lesser proportion of them so you have to take a basically a larger sample if you're going to take an air sample so oh. rather than a 20 liter sample that you might take for a you know a, a just a you know mid-range volatile organic compound kind of thing you're taking maybe a four or five hundred liter sample okay so you're Got taking it. a lot bigger sample because the amount in the air is a lot smaller and forgive me did you say that do you guys so do you i know that only because thanks to sarah that you guys have a, a potential sorbent tube it has to be in a special pump to collect the amount of air there's a rate requirement or a flow mm -hmm. requirement but if somebody had a dust sample could they send it to you for analysis or um, yeah, I mean, we, we don't do as much with the semi-volatiles, um, but essentially, yeah, you take the dust and you basically mix in some solvent and, it, and that pulls those particular chemicals out of the, the dust and then you run it on instrument just like you would um, a VOC sample. Well, that, and maybe that's a good segue here uh, as I'm getting ready to pull up my screen. Um, I was going to ask you about, you know, help with interpretation. Um, SVOCs uh, definitely is starting to become... Um, more of a topic of uh, uh, flame retardants was always a great example in homes mm -hmm. because we're also looking for orders of magnitude sources um, that can produce something like that. And normally we're not looking for, you know, something this small that can create a, 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 some sort of a total home exposure. You're looking for mm -hmm. orders of magnitude. That's always the low hanging fruit to grab. Mm -hmm. And yep. you can imagine that insulation that has flame retardant spray on it that covers, you know, or includes, I don't know, 50 to 60% of the surface area of your, your, your home would be a concern. So that's good to know. When we get into the topic of um, collecting samples, um, especially obviously through you, we get into like different uh, levels. Probably I should have started with the, uh, the other. Um, there, people have options. They, they can go to your website here, which I found after about a minute of navigation to be very straightforward. And as a professional, you know, I can go to, you know, residential, uh, you guys provide different types of reports. And some people who have uh, been my clients who knew about you but hadn't done any testing first has asked me, why would I do you know, these sample reports? There's different levels. And they're mm -hmm. like, I don't know why I would choose a basic report if you're looking at the screen versus inspect versus re predict versus reveal. Mm -hmm. We can talk about formaldehyde later. What is your recommendation? How does one choose? Uh, are they getting more information? And I'm assuming they're paying a little bit more for it uh, for different levels of these reports. Yeah, uh, essentially. Um, so we the initial product that we had was the um, the IAQ Home Survey Inspect, um, okay. and that was just kind of a 
overview of everything you can possibly get um, in terms of, you know, a little bit of, you got the total VOC, you've got a total mold VOC, which I'm sure we'll talk about uh, later. You've got a handful of chemical compounds. We have what we call the contamination index, which kind of gives you an idea what sources to go after um, in, a, in a home or a commercial space. Um, so it's just a little bit of everything. Um, right. But then people wanted more information. So in order to get to a, to a higher uh, level, um, we had to make sure we ran certain quality control and, and you know, run the instrument in a certain method. So the predict is basically an inspect where we've done that additional stuff and we can go back and get more data. So we can get uh, a full list of all the chemical compounds that are in the sample with that. So, so you could argue, and this is the part where you correct me if I'm wrong, but if somebody was to do the survey inspect, they, they'll have data that looks similar as I'm trying to navigate this, bear with me, um, yes, navigate that looks like this, but they wouldn't have the option to go back and flesh out more data if they wanted to. You right. guys don't have access to the data anymore. It is gone. Um, uh, let's say the level in this example here, and this is one of your sample reports, the predict actual report shows what looks to be according to this measure, uh, which we'll talk about in a moment, uh, elevated. Um, mm -hmm. And so one may say, okay, I'm going to go to, you know, again, trying to navigate a report that I'm not qualified to do versus you guys, but there, there is this contamination index. It's a guide. It is to help the person go, here's what we think may be a source. And of course I'm going fast now and I'm going to pass the TV, the microbial VOCs like we didn't see it. There's, there's other bits of information uh, in here that helps the reader figure out, you know, should I be focusing on more of a building related exposure, mm -hmm. like um, off gassing of building materials, or is it because of the hairspray I'm using, which is more of a human related, or I think you, that's a lifestyle related source. If you're looking at the screen. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and then does it, does this part of the report that we're looking at right now, does it just continue to break it down further? There's a lot of different color coding and things going on in your reports, a ton of information. There is, there is. Um, and we do get a lot of questions about that. Um, as you might notice from, from the report, um, that coatings category is 500 and it's moderate and the PVC cement is 50 and it's high. So a lot of it depends on, it's not just like an, a scale that's common across everything. It's, it's basically weighted by what is typically found in indoor air. So PVC cement, you normally don't see that much. So 50 is a really big number. Um, whereas uh, paint, you know, all the walls have paint and you know, it's a huge surface area. And then you've got, sometimes you have people have stored paint in like a basement or attached garage. And so paint, you tend to have a lot higher of a number. So, right. so you have to scale it appropriately um, to, to make it make sense. I know there's more information lower at the report, which I want to get to where you single out, single out like top tens or, or what of actual chemicals. So I don't want to forget about that. But you brought up this idea of it's weighted based off of like an expectation or an average home. And I think that's a fantastic segue into interpretation, I, I'm going to pick on uh, this one right here, where on the right of the screen next to the graph, you say that there's this distribution of over 8,000 samples. Now, I'm curious, I'm assuming there's more than 8,000 samples at this point. That was just when this report was produced. Yeah, yeah, it's been a while since we've um, updated that particular uh, example report. But yeah, we're in the, I, we're in the something 50,000 something um, okay. in terms of all the samples that we've run. Uh, and it, it's, it's, it's interesting that the distribution really doesn't change. From, from the 8,000 to the less than or equal to 50,000 number that you're referring to. Mm -hmm. uh, you brought up a good point before we, 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 when we just got on the phone earlier about um, 
about the bias that's inherently assumed. Um, you're going to be getting samples from people that think they have problems in their home. So how does this, how do we know? And no one, let me, let me be clear to the viewers. Indoor air quality is a very complicated. It's a fluid. It's like you're sampling a fluid situation. There's things are constantly changing. That said, how do you deal with the fact that, you know, maybe what if 8,000 of these homes, uh, there was a 50 gallon drum of benzene open in the living room and it skewed the results, but you're saying it's normal background. How do you mm -hmm. counter that argument? Um, well, you mentioned statistics before and it, it kind of comes that it back to that. So those are outliers. So you've got, you know, one super, super, super high benzene to use that example, right. um, that you're going to, um, no, something was definitely not a typical kind of situation. And you're going to have 20,000 that are benzene is at what you might call a, a more normal or typical level. So that one is essentially in terms of weighting is going to not count for much. Okay, got it. Sure. So you are tracking statistics um, and seeing what's showing trends. Um, do you have the ability, I can tell you I don't, uh, to get background on these samples, even in the earlier research stages where you're trying to get an appreciation where are we are we getting a sample from a commercial setting versus a residential? Mm -hmm. Because if I'm sampling an industrial plant that uses a lot of chemicals, I imagine the background is going to be viewed differently. Not that we want anybody to be exposed to that higher level, but sure. there's got to be some way to provide a guideline. And clearly you guys have done a fantastic job. Uh, I would argue this is eons above what we have because the next comparison is to go to say, for example, the NIOSH pocket guide to look up a chemical, and we're talking about exposures in industrial settings, which is hardly the type of exposure concerns that we're dealing with when we use the term chronic. We're talking mm -hmm. about low dose over a long term. Nobody has those numbers. I would argue you guys are pioneers in this industry to help us f constantly fine tune and update what this curve should actually tell us. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it is challenging. Um, and workplace um, exposure limits, they're, they're really designed more for industrial type locations. So even a workplace like an office or retail or something like that is also typically not going to reach these levels either. I mean, there's a few, obviously, um, uh, different or, um, exceptions to that. Yeah. You know, you might have uh, dry cleaning, for example. So then you've got the dry cleaning solvents. Um, some, you know, hair salons, you have, you know, there, there's treatments you can do for that have produce a lot of formaldehyde. So if those aren't ventilated properly, you might get a higher level than that. So, sure, um, sure. but aside, but you know, you know, but even a restaurant, you know, you got all that cooking. So, you know, it, it, it's often smells great. Um, and the, the levels will definitely be higher than in another different type of environment, but you're still not going to reach the workplace levels. Okay. So it's I gotta... challenging. It can. And that's the whole point is we have to have baselines. And, and I would think we'd also argue that with chemicals, I think the goal uh, is less is better. And, and beyond what maybe sort of atmospheric or natural background we would have, I, I think we're, or, we're looking at levels and concentrations that are uber low, or at least the limit is usually, is usually the detection equipment, not necessarily, you know, something else. Um, but that we're trying to fine tune, whereas it can be complicated with other things uh, like mold, where we're looking for more normal fungal ecology. We're not looking for background. In other words, we're not looking for an average level of benzene in the house. It's never looked at as, well, that's just normal. That's just background from the outside. There's not much right. you can do about that. It's relative. Um, a question real quick, and I know it's kind of, um, I'm, I'm just picking apart the reports to help m myself and others. I've always had a hard time with the units of measurement. 
Like mm -hmm. everybody uses parts per million, parts per billion. Um, uh, you've seen grams per, you know, then you have nanograms per liter. Why isn't there consistency on this? Why can't we just say parts per million, like 1900 parts per million or parts per billion? Like why is that, why is it reported this way? Um, well, the first part of your question, so why are the units always different, um, is typically they come out of different um, organizations that come up with a recommendation or, or a method or something like that, and, and they use this unit, and then the other one over here uses this other unit, and you know, so you have to convert back and forth. Um, something like the TVOC, uh, for example, I, I wouldn't typically use a part per billion or part per million um, uh, value for that because that takes into account that molecular weight we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. You have to use that in the in the calculation of of what that number is. You would so, need to do that. Yes, is what you're saying. So, in other words, a handheld meter that's five to ten thousand dollars that's quantifiably reporting a hundred parts per billion. Mm -hmm. There's there's you can't appreciate. It's it's harder to interpret what that value really means because you don't you don't know the molecular weight of what you're dealing with. Those, um, well, essentially, yes. So what they do with that is they, they basically assume a molecular weight or a, a compound. So in a lot of cases, um, they're going to use, it's going to be whatever. Isobutylene. You know, 500, yeah. And it's referenced to isobutylene. So it's using the molecular weight of isobutylene. Right. And they, they argue, and correct me if you probably know an ounce more than this than I do, to say the least, it, they would argue that it's the most commonly or it represents the widest average of all of a, of a broad spectrum of chemicals it's got a curve that's complementary to the majority so that you can look at that number and perhaps it's actually accurate for something other than isobutylene that may be present in the environment that's that's the the the, the concept of it um it, it's always kind of confused me why they picked iso isobutylene because it that's in terms of vocs you you actually don't see a lot of it. I mean, you will see it, of course, but right. in relationship to the other um, chemical compounds that are present there, it's it's very light. So it's kind of on that very volatile, volatile um, range where they kind of yeah. cross over. Right. So the majority of your VOCs are going to be heavier than that. So it always seemed to me that you would want to use a, you know, something like maybe toluene, which is, you know, a little bit heavier. And so may, might be more representative of the VOCs as a whole in terms of that weight uh, yeah. um, characteristic, but it's, it's industry standard to use isobutylene. So yeah, I've never, never Whether really or not understood. <laughs> no, but you see this, this is the truth that, that the viewers need, even if it is opinion, it's our truth. And, and it's fantastic because it, it, it shed light to me on another part, which is consider that maybe a, a handheld meter came from an industrial setting where they did know the gas and you did calibrate to the known gas. And now it is more accurate. Whereas the indoor air quality industry kind of grabbed that technology as a screen and a uh, screening tool. And maybe we overextended uh, its ability. When I don't see we, I don't mean me, but I mean as an industry, mm -hmm. we've we've taken that meter and oversold its abilities. It's not that it's not it's not useless, but it may be uh, less useful than maybe somebody, especially somebody who has a known or strongly suspected chemical exposure or chemical mm -hmm. exposure concern would want. And so you start looking at other tools that do take into consideration molecular weight, who can. Um, uh, depending on the level of analysis you get, uh, quantify and qualify the chemicals, maybe a panel, 
uh, which is what I think Prism Analytical has offered as a service. That's a great tool. Uh, you can go as detailed or as simple as you want to make it. Um, segwaying into, uh, before we jump into the, the microbial VOCs, um, you offer an option for somebody really to essentially dive as deep as they want to go to the limits of your guys' uh, capabilities when they start with something like a predict. And what I mean by that is they can look at this level here and go, I want to know more about the specifics, mm -hmm. which you kind of provide, if I can navigate this even further, you kind of provide. So talk to me about what this is then in the report. These are top tens. Um, sort of. Uh, so we've ta basically taken what, you know, we kind of described that as a panel of, of uh, VOCs that we commonly see in indoor air. Um, and we use that as kind of as a subset. So we're looking for basically the, the highest concentration, the top 10 highest concentration compounds within that set of about 100. So it's not, you're going to see a lot more than that in terms of things that you're going to have in indoor air. Um, so to be clear, the, you guys did run a panel on this. I know it's an example report, but I'm mm -hmm. sure it's a, a physical sample. And you, 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 your machine knows that there's a top, I'm, I'm saying top 10. We'll just say these lists. This is not an order of the highest concentration available in that sample, or is it? Like when you reported this, these were considered to be the, the main players, or you're just saying, no, these are the top common ones. And by the way, here's what your actual levels were. So a little bit of both of those. So okay. it's the top 10 highest concentration compounds out of that subset of 100. So, okay. but there's more than 100 uh, chemical compounds in an air sample. And we, we're typically, I mean, depends on what you got there, but you're probably talking 300 to 1,000 uh, compounds that you might see in an indoor air sample. So okay. we're, we're kind of self-selecting the things that we typically see in indoor air because we know that they're going to be there probably. Fair enough. We know, we know that this sample is limited and not encapsulating all the available chemicals that are, uh, right. nor would you guys uh, uh, or claim that. Um, but the, for this particular sample, the, here's what these levels were. We, you and all three of us know that there could be other chemicals that are present and of a level of interest or concern. Mm -hmm. What does a person do then if they want to know more? Because you have the access to the data. If they want to take it to the next level, they say, this is great information, this predict report, but I really kind of want to dig deeper. What If I'm your client, what do I do next? So we do have uh, a couple of options for that. So we can do what we call a post facto and take this predict and, um, and then we'll, uh, basically go through the, the, the data, the raw data, and we'll pick out every single chemical compound we can identify. And then okay. we'll get a list that's kind of like this, although we don't put all the, uh, the sources uh, there. Right. And, and then that will be um, pretty comprehensive. Um, there is a po some point that it's a, below the ability of the instrument to detect. So you are right. always dealing with that. Um, it doesn't matter what technology you have, it, that's always uh, a factor. But then, but then now you're looking at, you know, maybe two or three or four pages of basically this um, that would give you the, the, full, the full kind of report. That's essentially what the reveal is, is it does that all in one shot. Okay. So this is the first time I've actually literally looked at, well, the first time I recall looking at it, the reveal and like, like that extensive. So maybe near the bottom. Yep. There's a more comprehensive, oh, wow. There you go. There's a more comprehensive panel. Oh, and look, it's reported in different uh, concentrations to help those people like me who want to see a different unit. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. Uh, and it yep. keeps going, um, yep. or at least up to that one. So, so what is, um, 
is th there's got like a panel, like I've heard of TO15, TO17, like EPAs. There, there's a limit. You could say there may be 4,000 chemicals, but how many are you able to actually look for? Whether or not it's below the detection limit or not, your unit's good for up to 400 chemicals, or how does that work? So, yeah, that gets into, there's a, a couple different ways of determining what that concentration is. So a TO15 or 17, which are basically the same methods, except one uses a canister and one uses a, a, an absorbent tube. Um, okay. But aside from the collecting the sample, they're, they're, they're analyzed, run and analyzed in the same manner. Um, so that list that you have, and every lab, by the way, has a slightly different list. So make sure if you're something specific you're looking for, um, that okay. you check that out. Um, Which is helpful for the guy who's in industry working for chemical exposures in a plant, but it does little to anything for the homeowner who has no clue. Right. And people have run a TO15 or 17 in a home and don't find anything. And I'm never surprised because those methods were designed really with the, again, the industrial uh, locations in mind. So they're common solvents and, and things that you might find in a more industrial area. So they miss a lot of the things that you would find in a more uh, a typical commercial or, or residential kind of environment. So do you have a, um, I'll, I'll go ahead and use the word that nobody likes. Do you have a, propriet a proprietary panel that you offer that's more home specific for this particular type of analysis for residential? Um, not really. Um, so the, getting back really to the, the how two ways to, to determine concentration. So one of them is to get uh, a reference material um, you mentioned, I think, benzene before. So if you yeah. get something that, you know, has been, you're assured is exactly this concentration of benzene and you put it in your media, whether that be the, a, a tube or a, a canister, um, and then you run it on the instrument and then you run several different le levels and you get what's called a calibration curve. So once you have that calibration curve, then you have essentially what's, again, determined a quantitative value. So you'll see that at the very top there, quantitative compounds. Oh, sure, um, sure, you know, sure. On, on the page we're just at, yeah. Right, right. So, um, and then, so that's the preferred way. So this will give you a far more accurate, you're looking at, you know, maybe it's accurate within 20%, 15%, something like that. Okay. So the other way to do it is to basically say, this is the size of the, the, the signal that my instrument gave me. And I put something in there that I know, and I do a ratio of the two and I get a semi-quantitative compound, which is that second uh, uh, heading there. And that's basically an estimated value. So the, the uncertainty is a lot higher. So it's not within 20%. It might be within 50 or 60%. So but it's you more do that like because it would be too expensive for, for anybody to have curves or, or to calibrate every single known chemical. I think Sarah touched on this when I first met her, that you guys do certain ones to reach a level of quality assurance. But beyond mm -hmm. that, it's just estimates based off of known. It's a formula. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this is basically the rest of the sample is in this semi-quantitative section. So okay. that, that quantitative section would be your TO15 or 17 list. Okay. Um, so it's not necessarily representative of anything uh, specific. So okay. that panel of 100 that I, I mentioned a little while ago is, is kind of our, um, you know, our commonly found list. Um, it's not proprietary, um, but it, it's just, again, an experience thing based on the number of samples that we've, uh, that we've run. Given that we've been pulling from things like CDC and other more commercial applications, I think this is a, a move in the right direction. Um, what about, um, if I can find it now that I, I lost my place, um, what about the, the EPA, um, the HAP chemicals? Mm -hmm. This one's right here. Yep. What is that all about? How does that differ from what you just shared with us? So this is yet another subset of, of things. Um, so 
uh, HAPS, the hazardous air pollutants, is um, basically EPA's list of, of compounds to watch for. Um, so they've put limits on them. Um, and these uh, here, I think there's 15 or 17 of them, are the crossover of that HAP list and our 100 compound subset list. So these are the ones that are in that subset. It's interesting to note, though, that these levels are more established for ambient outdoors, are they not? EPA? Um, we don't regulate indoor air quality with the EPA, not directly anyway. We look at outdoor ambient levels like the criteria six pollutants and things like that. I mean, are, they, are you saying that this is really meant to be handed into the indoor environment that was established by the EPA? These are, well, it's a little bit of both. So the HAPs kind of originated out of chemical spills. Um, so from an industrial kind of standpoint, um, and that, yeah, it's not an all-inclusive kind of list either. So it. these just have that, that, that extra um, limitation in terms of these are things you want to avoid. Um, yeah. So some of several of them are carcinogens. Yeah. Um, so that's definitely something we want to avoid. Um, right. And there's different levels. So they've done some testing and, and things like that. Um, actually, I, I am considering uh, making a change to this and using some of the health-based guideline values. Mm -hmm. So, you know, OSHA is the, you know, is the, the workplace, you must do this. NIOSH yeah. is, which is this list, is the, basically they're coming ahead of OSHA and, and taking a look at that, whatever those limits are, and recommending to OSHA that they change them or leave yeah. them the same. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, but those are Truth meant for still learning. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But those are meant for, you know, healthy adults for an eight hour work day, five days a week. Which I was going to so. say, that's the other part of this is that that's the limit is that it's like, okay, so eight hour work day, what about 10 years of my life? Right. You know, it's like, it's a different thing. And there, it's, you're never going to, for those listening, you're never going to have like a chemical free, in, in fact, you know, contaminant free. In fact, I would argue there are some normal backgrounds that your body and its immune system is adjusted to uh, a 50 gallon drum of benzene in your living room being excluded from that example. Um, but it's all about trying to get it as clean as possible. And PRISM has done a great job to try it and narrow the search down for you without having to spend thousands of dollars. I bet I got your attention now. <laughs> uh, to find out, you know, could it be these sources? Uh, and, and by the way, if you have a chemical sensitivity diagnosis, or you're somebody who suffers from chronic inflammatory response syndrome, or some sort of a multi-system, multi-symptom illness, that it may not just be mold. Mold is such a hot topic, um, but it's not the only thing. Speaking of mold, um, one of the things that um, now that I'm almost completely lost in your reports, because you guys are loaded with information, so you guys get to watch me struggle here. Um, oh, there it is. Predict. They also test for uh, microbial volatile organic compounds, um, kind of a bonus, if you will, when you're doing, um, I've been using the predict report. Um, in fact, I just got a couple results in today. Um, and it helps us look for the lighter weight chemicals that molds can produce the VOCs, which sometimes can help us locate sources. Um, talk to me a little bit about what I'm looking at right now, how you guys... I guess maybe the why you're looking at it and um, how you interpret it. Sure. Um, well, this is similar to the, to the TVOC. It's, you know, a statistical, what are the numbers that we typically get? Um, in this case, we're skewed a lot more to the, to the smaller numbers. Um, but the mold VOCs, and there's various lists um, of them. Uh, we, PRISM uses a list of 21. Um, they're actually frequently... Um, found in various literature and things like that. So a way to find that list, by the way, is there a, an access to that online? Um, 
There is. We do have a technical bulletin, I think, or an app note that has that list in it. Okay. So That'll be something I, that maybe people can go on your website. Uh, if we have time to show them, that's great. But that sure. would be great because sometimes it comes up. Yeah. Which okay. compounds are you looking for? Right. Right. So, and, and similarly to, you know, the VOC, the, the VOCs or that, that panel of hundred or, or, or the, the subset of the HAPs, um, there are hundreds to thousands of mold VOCs. So these are going to be, um, chemicals that are produced by the mold as it grows or it right. as it eats. So they're uh, a product of the species of mold, the conditions, you know, temperature, humidity, what it's growing on, um, how much water it has access to, all those things uh, factor in. That's why you have such a big range of different kinds of chemicals. So yep. you're thinking, well, why don't you measure all of them? Um, a lot of them have other sources that they might uh, come into contact with so that you can't differentiate. Uh, benzene, for example, is one of the compounds that's given off. So is formaldehyde. So those are things where you've got other sources. So you can't necessarily say that you're sure it's coming from the mold. You pick, you pick a 21 was the list. Uh, we'll call them criteria chemicals that are focused on um, MVOCs or microbial activity uh, that you could argue to some level of confidence are less apt to be coming from a man-made source. Yes. Oh, that's fantastic. And that's, that's a great uh, spin on it. And it's funny because like, you know, like I'm, I'm salivating at like the potentials because a lot of times we're also not that this is looking for mycotoxins, but we oftentimes are people are asking us, well, I found this particular species of mold or I found this, um, I did a urine analysis and we found mycotoxins. And so, but I, and I know that either this uh, genus or genera of mold is known to produce mycotoxins and we're looking for any sort of surrogate or any other ancillary data can say, well, we can't find it in particulate form, but maybe we can find it in a lighter weight gas like a VOC that's maybe say it's more apt to communicate in a crawl space because a big heavy mold spore is typically going to settle with gravity if it's not in a wind tunnel. And I'm, I'm using an extreme example, but if it's sedentary, those it, on, like you mentioned about the, the semi-volatile organic compounds, they tend to settle out by virtue of their, their chemical makeup and behavior. And so it's not so different with a mold spore, it's heavier. So maybe that's not the best way to determine whether or not you're being exposed to a lightweight toxin like a, a mycotoxin or if it's attached to a fragment. But if, boy, I tell you what, if it was actively growing in your crawl space and you were to detect it with MVOC testing that we're seeing here on the screen, a bonus would be is can we look at those 20? I know you maybe can't do it here, but if we at least know the 21 common chemicals, maybe one day they'll be able to tie that in and say, well, these types of gen genus of molds are known to produce this. These ones are not. So mm -hmm. this correlates with your exposure or said another way, there is no correlation. That's the struggle and that's the tip of the spear we're on right now is trying to, to deal with exposures where there's not concrete evidence on, in, in anywhere in the home. Yeah, so. definitely. Okay. Definitely. Uh, is there, is there, uh, this curve is based off the same 8,000. So again, you're going back to here's what 8,000 homes showed us. This, this particular sample report was in the moderate range. Um, you, you mentioned down here below um, kind of like your, your methodology and the criteria. Are you aware of any um, guidelines or published publications that offer guidance and in interpretation for uh, MVOCs? Not really. Um, most of the, the publications that I've seen um, regarding mold VOCs have to do with um, typically controlled laboratory conditions. So you're going to grow the mold on some material, 
maybe it's drywall or cardboard or something like that. And you're going to measure the VOCs that come off of it. And so now you've got a nice list of, of what that particular mold produced on that particular um, fuel source or substrate. Right. Um, so the problem with those is, again, coming back to the, the common VOCs that are you know common to mold and something else, right. um, is you have to have the information about what the something else is in order to really narrow down the mold list to those that are going to actually give you the data. Great example is carbon dioxide. There's, there's evidence and research and studies that have shown um, carbon dioxide production from mold. It's also something that we exhale. So it's like you can't just blindly... Uh, it's always about taking pers uh, a perspective of the result and balancing it out. And that's the problem I deal with. Probably the top one is people, and I understand why, but they want that black and white, that it's yes, no response. And, and, and we're really in the grays. The, people, the thing that everyone hates the worst, which is they want black and white. Um, they hate gray areas, what we live in. Uh, because if it was black and white, you probably wouldn't be calling Prism Analytical to do an assessment. You would have known the problem and fixed it, or you wouldn't have been calling somebody like me to go out and assess the home. So it's... Um, right. I don't like it, but that's where we're at. Um, switching gears a little bit, what about documentation? Um, maybe this is more, certainly it's for uh, anyone watching, but in the professional realm as an IEP, um, we do as much as we can to reference consensus, publication studies, mm -hmm. and maybe not specific to the MVOCs. I'm just talking total picture now with your services. Is there somewhere that they can go online to learn more about the science of, of, of A, your analysis methodology, and maybe B, where you're pulling this in, how the curve was established, that sort of thing, so that they can have an intelligent conversation with their clients? Um, somewhat. There is a description on there in terms of the instruments that we use and, and some of the methods um, that, are, that are appropriate for those. Um, I'm trying to remember where that is. That's um, fine. If you want to grab the screen, you can. I mean... No, that's, a, that's okay. Um, mm -hmm. But there is, uh, so that, that's the description, basically, of the, you know, the instruments and, and that. Um, in terms of the, you know, the statistics and, and some of those kinds of things, not really. Um, there's mm -hmm. a bit of a description in the report. Um, I mean, the report, right. is, the report is dense. That's one of the things I don't actually like about it. It's got a lot of information, but it takes a while to make your way through it. Right. And for the client um, that's got cognitive issues and has about 30 seconds to retain Right. something or not. But, but, but I know why you do it because for those who have worked with me in the past, they're sitting there going, uh, Mike, your reports are mostly the same way too. You know, it's like 30 pages and there's actually three page of customized data because mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's the methodology that's the most important and the limitations. And it's not about, it's not about writing disclaimers. It's about educating the limitations of what we know and what we don't know. It's, it's being forthright. It's being transparent. And mm -hmm. I applaud you guys for making a hell of an attempt to do that. I mean, most people don't, it's just, they come in their home and they want to charge people money and say, no, it's fine. It's, you don't, you don't have any issue. And then all of a sudden they're doctors and they're qualified to make these claims. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, you're not qualified. <laughs> um, Okay. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, fair once enough. you found that out, then yeah, you have to go find a professional in whatever field that is, you know. So, right, you know, maybe we, we do that all the time. Advice. We'll, yeah, we'll say, you know, hey, look, if you're having this level of health symptoms, you know, we can provide you the chemical information, but you're going to have to, you know, find a doctor or a toxicologist or something like that to to help figure out what what which of those things are going to be affecting you specifically. No different than us. Yeah. Um, what about clientele? Um, compare, let's say the two choices are an IEP like myself or just the random homeowner, uh, Mrs. Smith. Are you seeing a higher percentage of one or the other coming in requesting um, these types of um, samples? Um, probably more on the professional side because um, we'll get, you know, somebody like yourself is going to go out and maybe you'll, you know, look at three 
three locations that you decide you want, you want to take a VOC test for because you think that might be part of the problem. Whereas a homeowner is really only going to do that once. Right. Um, we try to encourage them and, and say, you know, look, you, this was the, what your air looked like at the time the sample was being collected, but that's not necessarily what it looks like a week later or in the winter versus the summer or something like that. Sure. Um, so Seasonal it, variations, change. especially temperature and yeah. yeah. But, but if they needed to, you have the, uh, that happens all the time. I do remote phone consults and, and that sort of thing mm -hmm. across the world. And you don't always have an IEP that's 15 minutes from your doorstep or the funds, the whole thing, issue of budget. Mm -hmm. You guys, in my humble opinion, offer a very reasonable package. Um, is it something that uh, uh, Mrs. Smith, the homeowner, can go on your website, like, for example, uh, contact us? It looks like there's a, an equipment request so they can fill out that information and request a pump to rent. How does that work? So um, we do have a direct-to-consumer portion of our of our business um, that's got a simplified version of the of the report. Um, if somebody contacts us and has you know serious issues that they're trying to deal with, we'll typically try to find somebody that we work with in their area that we can recommend or. Oh. Some organizations, um, I know IAQA and AIHA for sure have find a pro. Yeah. Um, so you can look up where you live and find somebody within, you know, hundred miles of that location, wow. uh, something like that. So we'll typically try to rec uh, refer them to, to a professional, um, if, if they kind of come to us that way. Okay. That's, that's important to know. And it's so like, you really got to try to honor, I realize that there's people that are in tight budget situations and you, you can try to send kits if that's an option, but it's, it's so important to also understand that the value of a professional who can, can, can follow the instructions, who can help interpret the environment, which I would argue is more important than the data without context. It, the data doesn't really mean much. You do a great job offering guidelines, but it's a, uh, what was it that you shared with me earlier where you had a lady who collected a sample in her drawer and there was a bunch of hand lotion yeah, and it spiked the result back to a level that I'm not going to say you fell out of your chair, but now you're making phone calls and asking where, where did you collect this sample? And she had no idea that something so simple could have, I don't want to say ruined, but ruined the sample. Yeah. People don't make that connection between, you know, something that isn't a problem like a hand lotion. And I'm sure it was, scented with something. Um, right. So this smells great. Yay. But it's actually emitting VOCs. Right. So it's increasing what you're, what you're looking at, even though it's a good smell. Um, right. And that's, you know, something with uh, sensitive individuals too. A lot of that has to do with basically the, the toxic burden their body has to bear in terms of what they're exposed to. Right. So the less they're, the less they have to deal with, the easier their body has uh, processing. Exactly. processing right. That. Exactly. There's a, such a wide scope. You guys are in a, in a huge niche. Uh, to me, it was enough that got me making the phone call to you guys. Uh, again, uh, Sarah has been an absolute blessing, a patient, I'm sure, uh, helping me in the beginning stages and helping getting me set up. Um, their customer service, uh, folks, is, uh, at least with my experience, top-notch. Their turnaround time, even their standard turnaround time, is like two or three days for most of their analysis, which, again, in the world I live in, it can range anywhere from, uh, on average, a week to two weeks. It just depends on the analysis and, and that sort of thing. And other labs that, um, you know, they'll even say seven to ten days. And I think that mm -hmm. this is a great tool, um, certainly for the professional. That, that was the motivation behind this podcast. But for those of you that are in a tight spot um, financially, and I mean that legitimately because it's relative. Like if you're saying you're in a tight spot, but you're on your way to Costco to buy a new flat screen TV, I mean, it's relative. You know, you, your health right. comes first and you don't want to be taken advantage of um, uh, professionals who just are out to make money. But 
with a little bit of research, uh, you can even go on IEP radio. Um, hopefully we'll have a link to try to find professionals for you soon. We're actually building the website uh, as of the time of uh, during this time right now that we're doing the podcast, but it will be up and live by May of 2019 uh, to help you find people who are qualified. Maybe I can work with PRISM to um, uh, promote that sort of um, uh, I, it takes a village, a community mm -hmm. of professionals working together on, in, from both laboratory setting to professional in the field to resources to help you figure out, well, how, how susceptible or how concerned should I be? Mm -hmm. So their website offers a lot of great. Now, Prism Analytical, is, is this just like a, I was talking this, I think it was Sarah before that, um, it, it's, a, it's a leg or an arm of a larger affiliate. I, I guess maybe what I'm really asking you is, do you offer other services that are related to indoor air quality that are not chemical samples? Uh, yes, we do. Um, so there are uh, actually eight other labs in the, the network that we're in. Um, so we're able to do, um, PFAS has been coming up a lot lately, at least here in Michigan, it was kind of a big deal. So what is that? Uh, PFAS stands for per and polyfluorinated uh, alkyl substances. There's going to be a quiz on this later, folks. So it, it, mm -hmm. it's a mouthful. It is a mouthful, um, but it's uh, becoming more and more evident that this is a um, this is a group. It's actually a really large group. There's about 3,000 in this particular group. There's about 24 of them that are of of kind of higher level concern. Um, Main and, source or sources are. Yeah. So this is where it gets tricky. Is so. Um, firefighting foams, which were developed in the 70s, I think, and are very commonly on military bases, civilian airports, um, fire training uh, facilities or uh, response sites, any of those kinds of things, you're typically using a lot. Um, and, and basically that goes off into the environment, gets into the water, very persistent, so it doesn't really go away, um, and quite toxic. So they're getting uh, there's more and more testing that's being done to to find out what what kind of locations, especially near military bases, airports, those kinds of things. And what about things like last year, two or three, uh, California with all their fires? Um, are we seeing? Are they using that type of product? Is that one of the concerns as well? Um, could be an indoor environment side uh, in terms of uh, the wildfire type things. I don't believe so. No. Um, okay. But um, and there are getting, come up. yeah replacements and things like that. And there you know there's some other places it goes as well. Okay. Uh, so we have that, and we have you mentioned fires. So dioxins are um, dioxins and furans, which is the shorthand word for or term for another large group of chemical compounds, which are heavier, semi-volatile actually. Mm -hmm. um, so those are produced during fire as well. So we have you know, people asking for that. Um, and one of our other labs does, does have a test for that. So. And, and, and I got to stop you right there. So where does a, somebody like me go to, cause you know, we, we get questions about, you know, Hey, we had a wildfire. We, we can smell the, the smoke, uh, mm -hmm. and we want to have our house tested. All I know is prism analytical technologies. Uh, do we go to your website or how does a person even know where to go if we're trying to utilize your services? Um, I would go, uh, either to this contact form or call us or email us okay. and and basically just ask um so it's uh, the the services of the other labs isn't necessarily visible on our um on our website right um some of them we're working on getting up a, a kind of a, a more complete listing of at least some of the more common things that we we come across right um and again these are typically in indoor environments so or or concerns um, you mentioned fire. We do actually have a test for fire VOCs. So that kind of goes with the dioxins. And um, so we, we can kind of provide like a package 
uh, if somebody has a, a fire type situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, a sister lab, it's not, it's not at, it's not in Michigan. It's not with PRISM. It's just another sister lab somewhere else. Right, right. Okay. But, but you can route everything through us. I mean, we can get, we can, we can contact the other lab and find out what they can do. And it's a one-stop shop, which is convenient. And, yeah, it's yeah. convenient for that. So anybody can go on here and say, hey, I'm so and such. I'm not really sure, but this is what the general concern is. And obviously, mm-hmm. if it's on your, under your umbrella of services, you guys are certainly proactive and have demonstrated that with me. So, I mean, I appreciate that. And that's what we're looking for is we're tip of the spear with what we're talking about here today. It's, it's, it's not set foundation stuff. It's about low dose. And we're really working together as a community. That's been the theme of IEP radio. That's been the theme of what I do. Uh, the organizations that I'm involved with at various levels, it's, it's, it's appreciating that it's not black and white. It's not a conventional approach where, you know, there's a test code for this or, you know, like for asbestos in, in schools, you know, there's a set level that the government has deemed to be acceptable versus not. We don't even have that. It's, mm-hmm. it's navigating a dark territory. Now imagine uh, the client, and I'm sure you two would appreciate this, where they're clueless. They don't have any goal. They just have a doctor that says, we think your home is making you sick. So when we get in the field of uh, different sorts of options where I see chemical exposures uh, being an influence of certainly those common household materials, but even things like um, questions about soil gases or microbial VOCs coming up through crawl spaces. I know I've mentioned that a couple of times. I don't mean to pick on just crawl spaces, but anywhere that is coming up into the home and where traditional sampling, uh, think about spore trap sampling, which we've already spoken about. Um, things of that nature won't detect it, but yet an exposure may still be occurring. Therein lies the point of hiring a professional who understands chronic illness and understands the different tools, such as the type of sampling that PRISM uh, can offer to detect something that may be hidden in the minutia of the environment. It's not so clear. And it's especially useful when, if your past experience has been well, I have a doctor um, who's saying there's a problem and you're being exposed to the environment, but I hired a local inspector. They did not find anything. It's not uncommon to find out that the reason for that is that they have an old school, kind of more of an acute exposure concern. And so if there's not this elephant in the room concentration or volume of growth on your wall, they don't deem it as a problem. And that's been a big problem in our industry because that doesn't help those who are susceptible or that does those lower concentrations do make a difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, thank you, guys. Um, I think we covered a lot of where I was at this report. There's obviously options. I guess what I wanted to do to leave it with uh, those listening, best way for a, an IEP, I'm assuming, to contact you, is that to go to your website um, and fill out the contact us form, or is there another method you prefer? Uh, that works great. Um, so it, it sends an email. You can do it directly, actually, if you want, that um, prism at patty-air.com. Got it. That's our, that's our primary um, general email address. So if you want to just send an email to that address, um, you know, Sarah keeps an eye on that one. So okay. we'll definitely get, get things taken care of. Um, we usually pretty prompt. Um, <laughs> if you do something desperately, then you should definitely call. Um, you guys came out with these new pumps. Um, I think they were just released. <laughs> um, so that's something too. Some of the literature on here, like for example, even this, uh, handout that I think I had on earlier. That's, that's the old version, right? There's a newer mm-hmm. pump that's able to do a lot more, if I'm not mistaken. Am I saying that right? Yes, yes, definitely. Okay. So this we designed um, years ago now because, uh, you know, if we are sending things out to a homeowner or something like that, there's no guarantee we're going to get it back. Um, and a lot of those pumps are $1,000 or, you know, 800 or something like that. And that's just 
it was just too much. So right. we designed a very, very simple, um, both simple in, in terms of how it works and, and simple in how, how it operates there. You just, is a battery operated, flip the switch, the little green light comes on, you know, it pulls air through the tube, you're done. Right. Um, but we have had, uh, you know, time periods where people are concerned about the battery. Is it going to, you know, have enough juice or is it going to be reliable enough or something? So um, we, uh, our sort of 2.0 version um, is a, uh, it's a plug-in version. Uh, we do have a battery pack. So if somebody is in a location like that, that they don't, they're not out of luck. Right. Um, and it's got a display screen so you can uh, see what uh, um, the... Uh, uh, well, you got run times, temperature. Yeah, this run time. So yeah, you can set and you can set a run time um, and then have the, the pump turn off. So if you can't be there right to pick it up, but you wanted a specific time, you can right. set the timer on it basically and it'll just shut off and wait for you to come back. Okay. We, got, we, got, we threw in a temperature and humidity in there as well just to kind of... Um, well, you're asking for those measurements anyway, right? So it helps the uh, the user. It um, does, yeah. Um, we didn't really get a chance to talk about that, but higher temperatures, you're going to have more VOCs. Right. Or temperatures, so you're going to have fewer. It adjusts the calibration when you do the in interpretation, I'm assuming. Yeah. So if we see something that's way out of whack, then we know that we should expect the numbers to be. How does that, you're right. Maybe we, I lied to the audience that we're not quite done, but um, what about that? So I'm in a home and I sample and it's say it's 50% relative humidity at 72 degrees, but it transports on an airplane in a cargo hold and it may be transported to you in the middle of the summer. What about those temperature influxes? How do we come about that? Or how do we deal with that? Um, so the, the tube works by, as I said, you're pulling air through and, the, and the, the, the molecules get essentially stuck to that absorbent material. Once they're stuck on there, they, they're kind of immobile. So we are actually uh, heating up the, the sample tube to something like 400 degrees Fahrenheit when we, when we actually run it and, and run the instrument or run the sample into the instrument. So very unlikely you're going to get to those kinds of conditions in, in some other environment. So what you're, also tying, what you're also suggesting is that it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's that moment in time. So once mm -hmm. it's stuck on the absorbent uh, at that given temperature and humidity, it's not the consequence of shipping that tube through various climates is not so severe because what's done is done. And unless you're getting into some ridiculous extremes, you're not seeing that influencing uh, the results. Right, right. Okay. And we've had a lot of, you know, weird things happen in terms of right. those kinds of things. But, um, and, and yeah, so if you're, if the, if the location is at an atypical condition, you're going to get something that's not typical of that environment too. So right. it's good to know that well, we I have it. I know the professionals would be worried about, you know, okay, fine, I get it. You want to know a stable environment that makes sense, but I'm worried about the, the, the environment after the fact. The tube's not sucking air through it anymore. What's collected on there is, but I don't know if that tube going through different temperatures is known to create an issue because I can tell you it's an issue for certain blood samples for mm -hmm. certain people that look like C4A, for example, is a blood marker uh, for certain people that they look at. And one of the issues we heard was that uh, because it wasn't frozen down to a certain level, uh, the, the C4A results fluctuated. And that was from the time the blood was drawn and including the transport to the actual final destination for analysis. Didn't know if that, it doesn't appear to sound like it's that big of a concern here. It's more important to know you're in a stable environment at the time you're sampling and to record that. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, the, the, the Zorbent will pick stuff up no matter what. So one of the, we do recommend people try to ship it overnight if they can. So we, so we minimize the exposure of the tube to other environments yeah, after sampling. Clear, 
this is not a lab setting for those of you listening. So um, we're not looking for perfection. What we are trying to do is to minimize any bias or mm -hmm. influence from the environment. And you are shipping overnight. You are going quick. And a majority of what was collected has been measured and uh, temperature relative humidity recorded. So my understanding is that by the time it gets to you next day, it's been in a relatively, can I use the word safe, uh, non-threatening environment yeah. from the standpoint of what's gonna come out on the machine once it prints out the data. Yeah, because you know the tubes will pick up a little bit uh, just sort of passively over time. Right. So if you take a sample and you don't send it to us till three weeks later, it's very likely that it picked up a little bit during that time period, so it won't be totally representative of the location you took the sample in. Right, and people need to understand that. While that, so that's the truth, and the and the issue is also that until they can figure out a way to ship their house to you and sample on site <laughs> and in controlled settings, it's just we're dealing with what the with the tools and abilities that we have. But that's good to know. Uh, question I, that I had, and I've been using your new version of the pump, and it, it's fantastic. I mean, um, you know, right. it's got as long as you can find a power source, and it does allow you to do the types of uh, semi-volatile organic compound sampling that this older version, uh, if I understand correctly, did not uh, let you do. So there's that. The other thing too is sample time. For those of you interested, there's a range. Like you guys recommend, I believe it's one to two hours uh, for TVOCs mm -hmm. and uh, MVOCs. Uh, formaldehyde is shorter, what, 20, 30 minutes? Right. Um, why is that? Uh, why, why the shorter duration? Um, it's because there's different sorbent material for the formaldehyde. That's why we have to take a separate sample. Um, so oh, yes, remember, it's not the same tube, just for right. those of you that are listening. Yep, and, and fortunately it looks different. If you have a, a glass tube, it's, it's a, a, like a, a pale off-white. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's, um, so I mentioned earlier about, you know, we're trying not to collect things that are kind of like the size of air because there's, you know, so much air in, in, in relationship to the VOCs. Yeah. Formaldehyde is not that much bigger than air. So we're looking at a sorbent that is um, designed for smaller molecules than we, than we would look at typically for the VOCs. Mm -hmm. um, and it also picks up water. So the other problem is no matter what level of humidity you have, you know, it'll pick up the water and then the water and the formaldehyde are essentially competing. So by taking right. a, a shorter length sample, we're, we're more confident that we're going to have an accurate formaldehyde. In other words, it, the sorbent will not have been overwhelmed with the water. Um, the consequence of getting a bad uh, constituents in that sample is more than your concern about not being able to sample for two hours or one hour. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Brilliant. So, yeah. I mean, the advantage of a longer sampling time is um, that you're getting a bit more of an average in right. terms of, you know, so if something weird happened and you happen to sample it right in that, you know, 10 minute time period. I know mold spores a lot of times are they're just a 10 minute time period to collect those uh, samples. Yeah, five, um, 10 minutes and most of them settle out. So what are you really sampling that whole thing? Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Do you, do you stir up the air and, and all that or not? Or, I mean, there's all sorts of stuff with, with spore sampling too. Um, right. But but that longer time period does get us let us get a, a little bit more of an average. And into um, your and in your guys is not your guys's, but in the name of science and their defense, um, we're talking about things that work with diffusion, and so you can have mm -hmm. things that will spread out. This is why you guys advocate or recommend like this sample's good in one of your sheets, the one we were just looking at, uh, one per two thousand square feet. That's not necessarily an accurate model for um, mold spore testing. And I don't want to get into the debate with you guys, certainly about mold spore versus mold fragments. But the point is, 
that's more of a, hetero, a heterogeneous reaction with the environment. If you have mold in the master bedroom and it's emanating from a wall that got uh, water damage and now mold resulted, you'll typically find a higher concentration in the master, all other things being constant, and there'll be a linear curve away from that environment the further you get away. But with lighter weight gases, it, it diffuses more evenly. This is why when somebody cooks popcorn in the kitchen, you can smell it through the whole house before yeah. long. And that is a methodology and that is an understanding about that particular type of contaminant, which allows you to take advantage and not necessarily need to sample 10 different locations in the home when um, you'll find that you're averaging about the same. And I will say to the viewers, that's exactly what I'm fine with the houses I've been doing recently where we're doing two samples in a home, whether it's 1200 square feet or 2000 square feet. The trend is that the levels are pretty close to each other, which makes sense based off of the concept of diffusion. So that's mm -hmm. good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Guys, um, for those of you listening, visit Prism Analytical uh, Technologies um, website. We've been jumping it all around here. Great uh, company, um, uh, fantastic customer service, as you can tell, willing to answer questions. Also, um, take pride in their uh, quality assurance. I've spoken at length uh, with Sarah about kind of the realities of what they deal with, but how important they know that, you know, they need to make sure that their, their equipment's in calibration and doing what they can do to provide you with a very reasonable tool to look for contaminants, whether it's man-made chemicals, household chemicals, building-related, uh, or it's something from microbial. And um, I'm, I'll try to look for that technical bulletin. If I can find it, I'll attach it to the, uh, the podcast links so that you can have a copy of that. Um, and thank you, ladies, um, very much for taking the time to speak with us today. I'm sure we'll be talking more in the future. Yeah, it's been great. All right. The content of this show is for informational purposes and represents the sole opinion of the host and its interviewees only. Any reliance on the information provided in this show is done at your own risk. Additional opinions and or research may change our current view of the topics spoken in this show. We do our best to minimize any inaccuracies presented and make legitimate efforts to back all comments with our own field experience, independent literature, or studies that support the topics discussed. This information should not be used to make conclusive decisions regarding your health or exposure. Ultimately, all questions and or concerns regarding your health should be addressed by a qualified physician. Additional exposure concerns and or questions pertaining to the health of your home or building should be addressed by qualified and on-site professionals. Any and all products and services discussed in this show should not be construed as a recommendation, endorsement, or guarantee that their use is appropriate for your situation. In short, we hope this information is of value to you, but please do not act upon it without actual and individual consultation and guidance by professionals who have taken the time and appropriate collection of data to assess your unique situation.